Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And boy, do we have a great show for you today. By now, if you're following the transfer pricing news, which, by the way, you can do on our spinoff podcast, The Fiona Show, Hot Off the Press, you've probably heard about a little court case involving the IRS and Altera, a chip technology company that was acquired by Intel in 2015. The case has been making headlines all over not only because of what the final outcome means for Altera, but what the ramifications, read big increases in corporate taxes, of this case mean for other tech companies as well. Are you listening, Google, Twitter, Facebook? We hope so. And just a reminder, you can earn CPE credits from listening to this show. It's simple, actually. We'll plant two CPE code words in this podcast. At the end of the show, email both code words, that's right, two code words, to the Fiona Show, all one word, at xbs.ai, and we'll send you your credits. How easy is that? Josh White, a London-based senior reporter at both International Tax Review and TP Week, knows this case well as he's reported on it in depth, most recently for TP Week's feature story, Altera considering fresh appeal against setback in IRS court battle. He's here with us today to discuss the ins and outs of the case and what the court's decision may mean for other tech companies. But before we dive into cost-sharing arrangements, the Administrative Procedure Act, and our arm's length principle, all of which play a role in this case. Let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. If you ever need proof that solid benchmarking is worth the effort, talk to IKEA Distribution Services. The Spanish IKEA subsidiary found itself in a debatable situation over a multi-year benchmark analysis that went all the way to the Spanish appeals court. The Nutshell, the company, which sells products to related party retail companies, used the transactional net margin method, that's the TNMM for short, to compare intercompany transactions for 2006, 2007, and 2008, claiming that the multi-year span was necessary because of the volatility in raw material prices. The company identified an interquartile range that extended from 2.1% to 7.6% and determined that if the average return on sales for the three-year period fell between those numbers, which it did, voila, arm's length. Not so fast, said the Spanish tax authorities, who had an issue with year 2007 because the year's return on sales came in at 0.42%, well below the lower quartile of 2.1%. The authorities wanted 2007's comparison on a standalone basis, in which case the company falls outside the range and therefore the tax authorities could issue an adjustment. While they were at it, they thought, why not? Just adjust 2008 too, since that return on sales percentage, though in range, falls below the median. We won't bore you with the minutia, or are we too late for that already? But we will tell you that 37 million euros were on the line. The Central Administrative Economic Court, the first court that heard the dispute, agreed with the tax authorities about 2007, but not 2008, and said that an adjustment to the median was right for 2007, 
but not the year after. Hence, yes, 37 million euros seemed fair. Fortunately for IKEA, the Court of Appeals felt differently, nodding to OECD guidelines and determining that there were no, quote, defects in the comparison, unquote. The court ordered that 2007 should be adjusted to the lower quartile, not the median, saving the taxpayer a lot of money. As for 2008, the appeals court sided with the IKEA subsidiary, saying the words that every taxpayer loves to hear, no adjustment necessary. Gibraltar is surely not the last, but as of press time anyway, it's the latest country to join the OECD's inclusive framework on BEPS, bringing the total number of countries and jurisdictions that make up the tax governing body to a whopping 130. Wait, what's that? Okay, scratch all of that. Scratch everything I said. This just in. Bosnia has joined the inclusive framework, bringing the country tally to 131. Told you Gibraltar wouldn't be the last. As you may know, the Inclusive Framework's goal is to make sure a minimum tax avoidance and international tax standard are enforced worldwide. Now that Gibraltar and Bosnia are part of the club, they must turn these standards, along with a few on cross-border tax disputes, into law. And while that may seem like enough to keep them busy for the rest of the century, that's just the tip of the tax iceberg. The framework's latest and perhaps most challenging endeavor is setting up an international tax regime that works in a digital economy and that the whole world can agree on. Now, who could foresee any obstacles with that one? Not I. If India's fractional apportionment proposals weren't causing enough controversy, on July 5th, India's new finance minister, Nirmala Sitharaman, proposed a new budget that's great for corporations and not so great for high-earning individuals. Her plan lowers the corporate tax rates from 30% to 25% for 99.3% of companies. The catch is that high-earning individuals would get hit with a higher surcharge, effectively resulting in a higher tax rate. The move is a part of India's gradual plan to decrease corporate tax rates to become more attractive to multinational corporations. Many industry leaders feel that 99.3% is still not enough and want a 25% rate for all companies, including that elusive 0.7%. Picky picky. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. You know what? I'm just going to come right out and say it. Our guest today, Josh White, 
is a big get for us on The Fiona Show. A senior reporter at International Tax Review and TP Week, Josh is up to speed on big issues in the tax world. In fact, he's written about just about all of them. Transfer pricing methodologies, check uh, the digital economy, check BEP's impact on businesses, check Trump's tax cuts, new tax policies and initiatives, check, 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 check. And today, he's here to discuss one of his recent articles and one of the most important cases in the future of transfer pricing, Altera versus the IRS. Welcome to Josh. Thank you so much for being here. And I just want to start out uh, our line of questioning today, learning a little bit about you, Josh. Um, How did you get into tax writing? Well, I started off as a researcher, uh, researching the market for tax advice and transfer pricing advice. And, And I started writing some articles at the same time for ITR. And they decided to take me on. That's how it started a few years ago. Uh, my background is more like uh, more policy oriented, like politics and economics. But it's it's very much applicable, I think. Indeed, indeed. And I know there are a number of controversial stories and subjects uh, of which we are going to discuss later in the program. Uh, but do you find any of those subjects uh, in this current moment of transfer pricing interesting? I'd say the I'd say the future of the arm's length principle and the debate around formula formulary apportionment, particularly when it comes to digital digital tax. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that's a really fundamental discussion that's going on right now, and it's something that we cover a lot. With regard to that debate between the arm's length principle and formulary apportionment, I know this comes up in the Altera case. Uh, if we could start then with just a standard definition of each, and then we'll go into why they're at odds. Yeah, in the case of the arm's length principle, it's a way of um, assuring that a, that a price that's set internally in a company is is uh, in line with what would happen in the open market between non-related parties. Uh, it could be calculated in all sorts of ways, but it's typically between subsidiaries as part of a, a, a multinational group. Um, and... By contrast, formulary apportionment, in certain variations, it doesn't need the arm's length principle because what you do instead, you have a formula that you apply to uh, the local operations in relationship to global profits. Traditionally, that's sales, uh, employment figures, and capital or assets. But there are many, many different variations on this. And before we dive into how this affects the Altera case, it'll be important to establish a many number of facts, but perhaps the best place to begin here uh, is the APA, the Advanced Pricing Agreement that the IRS and Altera signed uh, back in 1997. Um, the kinds of companies that sign these agreements, their typical circumstances, and their purpose for tax certainty. What does it say about this case that it involved an advanced pricing agreement, which typically is meant to ensure tax certainty for multinationals? In the case of Altera, it was about um, ensuring that their cost-sharing arrangements were completely above board and that their structures, particularly with regard to a, a subsidiary in the Cayman Islands and the U.S.-based company, it was basically to ensure that that arrangement was above board and in line with existing standards. The company was pooling its resources to share the burden of R&D costs between its US-based entity and its Cayman subsidiary. Uh, this, this wasn't unusual 
at the time uh, and many companies still have structures like this or at least they did in the past uh, many companies operate through similar networks of subsidiaries um, the APA was the aim of the APA um, from both sides was to ensure that there wasn't going to be a costly dispute of this kind uh, which is kind of the irony of this Yes, yes, quite ironic indeed. And with that, let's start from the beginning. Why did Altera end up going to court with the IRS? What was at issue? It was the APA. It was about, well, the APA covered the U.S. company's arrangements with its Cayman subsidiary. It covered licensing rights on Altera's intangible assets, certain royalty payments from the subsidiary to the U.S. entity. And... The dispute was over several transactions between 2004 and 2007, even though they had an agreement going back to 1997. Uh, the regulations changed as a result of that. The IRS felt that this, this agreement was no longer in line with existing standards, and therefore these transactions were open to a challenge because they, no, well, they were no longer above board, as it were. And just to establish facts, tell us a little bit uh, about Altera and what kind of company they are. Indeed. Well, Altera is a tech manufacturing company. It's known for hardware, particularly uh, electronic circuits, that sort of thing, um, but also some software like uh, Quartus Prime, for example. So they're, they're a mixture of hardware and software. Uh, the company goes back to 1983. And it grew to about 3.3 billion in assets by 2013, and then it was bought by Intel in 2015 for about 16 billion dollars, I think. And so, any tech company that's large in scale, that's rich in IP, and deals with hardware could be in the firing line. Which I know strikes some undertones of why the tech industry and uh, a lot of IP-heavy companies uh, have a strong interest in this case, of course. Uh, but even taking a, a bit of a step back from there, or a step inward, at least into the minds of uh, Altera, uh, how much are we talking about in terms of what this individual taxpayer will have to pay or arguably has overpaid? Uh, the value of the transactions going back to... Um, 2004, 2007 is about $80 million. Um, for a company of this size, that's probably not a lot of money, but it's still costly. Um, but the implications of this case could cost even more than that. It could cost billions for the wider industry. And that's why so many companies are so uh, fixated on this case. But even putting us in the context of, of those tech industry players who, who are looking at this, uh, how much does Google stand to lose from the outcome of this case if it doesn't rule in Altera's favor? Google costed the impact of this case at $3.5 billion, which is a significant figure for any company. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think other taxpayers have also costed it in their SEC filings. Uh, Facebook costed the impact on its effective tax rate of between uh, 25 to 30 percent, meaning it would jump from what it is now, which is like, I think, 14 percent up to maybe 30 percent, which is quite significant. And, and let's just stop there for a second, if we can ask Fiona. Fiona, do you know what a cost-sharing agreement is? Of course, I do. I know just about everything. 
A cost-sharing agreement is a contract between companies in the same multinational group that states how they'll share the costs and risks of developing or producing an intangible assets like trademarks or copyrights. Uh, okay, so that itself sounds pretty straightforward. Where's the problem? The Administrative Procedure Act was passed in 2003 and it obliges taxpayers to include employee stock options in the cost pool under all cost-sharing arrangements. And this is what through the Altera's, uh, or through the company's affairs into doubt, even though the, the company had a, a deal going back to 97 with the IRS, it didn't matter the fact that um, these arrangements were approved and everything was officially above board at that point. It was not invalidated as such, but it was thrown into doubt. Uh, the company revised its structures in 2005 to try and take into account these new regulations. Um, but it, it thought that since its model was based on com comparable transactions, it could probably defend its record. Um, it wasn't that the business model changed, it was that the legal framework changed. And suddenly the tax authorities were much more, um, much more, uh, what shall we say? They were much more aggressive about certain structures. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer, cross-border solutions AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp now within that 2003 law the administrative procedure act uh, what is section 482 what does it allow the irs to do section 482 allows the irs to challenge taxpayers if they've not included the stock options in the cost pool and the basis of this goes beyond the traditional interpretation of the ALP, which is that the transactions have to be based on comparability. But this regulation allows for a different principle, which is the principle of uh, principle that transactions have to be commensurate with income, meaning that controlled taxpayers must price an intangible transfer with the expectation that the income be commensurate with the relative risks and economic activity that they have undertaken. Comparability is far less important, and that's that really goes to the heart of this dispute. And what does the Administrative Procedure Act, or APA, uh, and Section 482 mean for this case specifically? It means that the way Altera priced its 
transactions as part of cost sharing arrangements. It means that those are those transactions are potentially out of line because it didn't include the uh, the stock options in the general cost pool, even though its past agreement allowed it to do this. And under past regulations, that was completely fine. So in going over these terms, we've just about covered the issue that the IRS takes with Altera. What is Altera's case against? The taxpayer maintained that the 2003 regulations were a, uh, a arbitrary and capricious interpretation of arm's length pricing. Those were the phrase, those were the words they used. Um, the argument being that um, they had they had fudged the interpretation to allow for a greater tax take, in other words. Um, company argued that the cost of stock options should not be included in the cost pool, uh, precisely because its arrangements on the grounds of comparability were fine, or at least they would have been had these regulations not come in. Indeed, indeed. I'm actually going to interrupt here for one quick moment to announce our first CPE code word. And that code word is Apple. Uh, Again, that code word is Apple, as in the outcome of this case can end up costing Apple a lot of money. Uh, Getting back to our questions. um, Along those lines, I I, I want to uh, touch really quickly on this. Uh, In 2016, the tax court initially sides with Altera. Could you tell us a little bit about that opinion? This was the U.S. tax court. They found that the uh, IRS position was invalid because the evidence supported the taxpayer's position, that the authorities weren't actually applying the arm's length standard as it's traditionally understood. Um, they, they backed the view that you need a high degree of comparability, otherwise it just doesn't work. Um, and I think many ta- tax professionals agree with that. Um, and then this this position was challenged in an appeal. So then from there, this case moves on to the Ninth Circuit Appeals Court and gets a lot more interesting. Tell us what happened then. Uh, the Appeals Court ruled in favor of the IRS, which surprised a lot of uh, observers. They overturned the tax court's position. Um, the vote was about, well, the vote was two to one in favor of um, overhauling the original position. Uh, and yet, this decision had to be withdrawn soon after because Judge Reinhardt died during the uh, during the decision making. Even though he had he had made his position clear, so the court decided yeah. to reconsider its stance until a new judge was appointed. Then this year, with a new judge, Susan Graber, the Ninth Circuit Court decided to uphold its decision from July 2018. Again, they voted two to one in favor of the IRS. Naturally, the company was very disappointed, and they've been considering their next step, uh, meaning that there's a chance this case will continue, and we might see another judicial review. And if we can actually take a step back for a moment, uh, this is a good question for Fiona. Fiona, what's at stake in this case for Altera? Well, Matthew, Altera has about $80 million on the line. But it's not the only company that stands to lose here. Companies like Alphabet, Facebook, Twitter, and Electronic Arts cite the outcome of the Altera case as a serious risk for their own taxes. Last year, Facebook estimated that Altera could raise its own tax bill by 25 to 30 percent if companies are not able to deduct employee stock-based compensation. And even taking a step back 
from uh, our concern that's shared by the tech community, uh, pharmaceuticals, a lot of uh, IP-heavy companies, uh, companies that often rely on stock-based compensation. Why is this such a concern at large for multinationals? It's mainly because Altera's arrangements are, aren't unusual. Uh, it's, it's very common for, well, for all companies, but also tech companies in particular, to structure their assets in this way. Uh, tech companies, because they're so IP-rich, uh, are probably more vulnerable. Uh, that's also true of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and, of course, employee stock options are a big part of the way these companies organize their affairs. And what specifically has the tech industry so worried about this case? Well, so many companies um, organize cost-sharing structures in low-tax jurisdictions, uh, not just the Cayman Islands or Ireland as well and the Netherlands. The same goes for Delaware. Uh, many, many U.S. companies do this sort of thing. I'm actually going to interrupt here for one quick moment and announce our second and last CPE code word, and that word is legal, as in sometimes tax avoidance can be unethical, but also, uh, believe it or not, totally legal. Again, that word is legal. Uh, Getting back to our conversation with Josh, uh, the element of the Intel acquisition that happens later. Josh, I'm sure then uh, this interests a lot of companies who have recently undergone acquisitions, especially if uh, they're the kinds of companies that uh, use APAs, have heavy IP, uh, a lot of other factors that play into this case. Indeed, indeed. And the, we're talking about sectors which are very prone to mergers and acquisitions. Outside tech, the pharmaceutical industry, it, it could threaten a lot of deals in that regard. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. Yes, and the arm's length principle comes up as an issue in this case. And in your article, James Fuller at Fenwick and West in California said that the way the initial court addressed this issue would have, quote, screwed up the world of transfer pricing, unquote. He said it would have taken uh, the U.S. off the arm's length standard. That sounds so uh, earth shattering, uh, especially to the global regulatory environment. Are the implications really that wide? It, w- it works in the sense that he's interpreting the arm's length standard in a very particular way. Um, so on his his terms, the U.S. is moving away from it in these cases. Um, of course, the U.S. authorities would argue differently. Um, as we've seen, this is a very contested area. Um, but it's also true that the Ninth Circuit Court said that the U.S. 
authorities had realized the ALP did not work in a large number of cases, uh, and the court suggested that the U.S. was gradually retreating from the standard while also paying lip service to it. That's quite, it's quite an odd situation. <laughs> I mean, the, the discussions we're seeing in international tax are very open-ended, but it does look like uh, there's a growing uh, shift or growing pressure for a shift away from the ALP and towards some kind of new system. Uh, it could be, it could be that we're moving towards formulary apportionment, or it could be that we end up halfway between where we are now and formulary apportionment. Um, in any case, uh, it's it's rational for U.S. companies and companies all over the world to defend their interests on this issue. And, and lastly, do you think that we've heard the last of this case? Is is this going to be the end, or will is it likely that Altera will appeal? The company hasn't said definitely what it's uh, what it's going to do next. It's still considering it. It's possible Altera will stage one more challenge, but if they do that, it will go to the Supreme Court, um, and it ultimately just drags this this uh, dispute out even longer. It costs them more, so they might uh, they might opt to just take a hit and walk away. Uh, but that does mean that. So many other companies are going to be exposed to huge risks on this. Of course, of course. And once again, you've hit on why this case is so important. The final Altera decision will have outcomes for so many companies. Uh, They can appeal or not. Either way, the company shoulders a lot of responsibility here. Uh, But like those companies that could be affected, we can only wait and see. Josh, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it here at the Fiona Show and look forward to more of your reporting. Sure thing. Likewise, thanks for having me. That looks like it's a wrap for us today on the Fiona Show. Don't let this be the last you hear of Josh White reporting on tax. You can find his articles on TP Week, that's tpweek.com, and also at the International Tax Review, which you can find at internationaltaxreview.com. Josh, we are certainly looking forward to seeing what you write about next. And while we're promoting great stuff in the tax world, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, The Fiona Show, on iTunes, and also check out our new spinoff podcast, The Fiona Show, hot off the press, where you can hear about new transfer pricing regulations, what's new from the OECD, the digital economy, and more. And oh, by the way, should Altera decide to appeal this precedent-setting case, you'll get the lowdown here as well. Until next time, this podcast is engineered, recorded, and co-hosted by yours truly. Marilyn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer and writes our scripts. This is Matthew DeMello saying over and out. (laughs) 